It's the Sleep Well, Stay Well podcast. Here we go with Malia Jacobson as your host. Well, hi there. Welcome to Sleep Well, Stay Well. I'm your host, sleep and health journalist, Malia Jacobson. Today, we're finishing up our mini-series on sleep and relationships with a big topic, the sleep divorce. What is it, and do you need one? Let's get into it. My guest is Dr. Chris Winter, MD. You may have seen his contributions to Men's Health or a number of other national publications. He's the author of The Sleep Solution, Why Your Sleep is Broken and How to Fix It. He's a neurologist and sleep specialist based in Charlottesville, Virginia. Let's get him on the line and start talking. Dr. Winter, thank you so much for joining me today. I am really happy to have you here. It's a pleasure to be here, Malia. I really appreciate the invitation. Yeah, thank you so much. So I was just talking to you uh, just before we started the recording about my last couple of episodes. I've been focusing on sleep and relationships and the impact of sleep problems, snoring, restless leg syndrome, all of those different things can have on our, our partners and on our relationships. And we were going to talk pretty exclusively about restless leg syndrome. You've done a lot of writing and um, you've been an expert for many pieces focused on restless legs, but we're gonna take it a little bit broader than that uh, because I have already focused a little bit on restless leg syndrome, but there is just so much there to, to talk about. I agree, absolutely. Um, it's, a, it's a topic that I think more, more people should discuss because I do think that the way we sleep and the impact our sleep has on one another is a, is a big influence on relationships. Oh, absolutely. And I think it's um, it's really interesting to look at the impact that um, our own habits have on the people around us, because sometimes we get so focused on our own health and think of ourselves as these individual islands, you know, that um, what we do for ourselves is just for ourselves. But no, what we how we care for ourselves really impacts the people around us. And I think that that really shows up when it comes to sleep. Absolutely. So I wanted to talk about the idea of a sleep divorce or sleeping separately from a partner, but first I wanted to talk about some of the things that can lead couples to consider a sleep divorce when things just are not working out with sleeping in the same space with your partner. In your work, what are some of the sleep problems that seem to cause the most friction for couples that people talk to you about? That's a good question. I think before I jump into it, I'd like to address the term sleep divorce I hate that term. It's so, <laughs> it's so dramatic, isn't it? It's so dramatic, but it's also so negative. I mean, right. I think that, I don't know. I mean, I think that, sure, if you go to Italy, you can get a tandem bike, but if you decide to get separate bikes, you didn't have a bicycle divorce in Italy. I mean, just decided, <laughs> I think it'd be more comfortable if we both had our own little scooters instead of riding, you know, on one. So, you know, anyway, I've, I've tried to come up with a better term, but I, I really can't do it, although... I threw it out there one time on Twitter and people came up with some really, really good things. So, you know, but in, in all seriousness, I mean, I think that it's unusual that we have sort of evolved to think that sleeping next to one another all night long, every night is somehow a mark of a healthy relationship. I mean, I can think of a hundred things that I would ask about first before you know, where do you choose to sleep, you know, and, and, and is it next to one another? I mean, I think it's great if you have a partner and, and the two of you sort of can coexist in the same bed and even like to spoon. I mean, that's great. Uh, you know, that's, there's nothing wrong with that at all. But I think that if you're somebody who likes a little bit more space or has a partner that's a little bit more restless, you know, choosing to get a bigger bed or separate beds or separate rooms isn't necessarily a bad thing, I, I don't think. So, I mean, I think there's a lot of things that can lead people to do it. I mean, my wife and I went through a period of time when I was on call that, you know, I was constantly getting paged by the emergency room. So on nights that I was on call, I just slept in the guest bedroom. Um, and I think that over time, she kind of secretly grew to love it. You know, it was like this little vacation. She got the whole bed to herself and I was you know relegated to some guest bedroom, you know, twin bed or something. And um, and it was kind of fun when we got back together. It was kind of like this, oh, reunited. I've been on call and in the hospital for a couple of days and now I'm back. And, and 
it kind of was nice. So, I mean, I think there's a lot of things that can lead to that. Um, but I don't think you have to have a reason. I mean, if you feel like it's just better for you to sleep in that, in that way, I don't think there's anything wrong with it, but it's a very sensitive subject for a lot of couples. No, it is. And yeah, I agree. And especially maybe it's something that's topical right now because of COVID and the fact that we've all been, many of us cooped up together for so long and work travel isn't so much of a thing anymore. And so those little breaks that people would get where they would get to have their own space, just it's not happening right now. And people Absolutely. are just kind of feeling that pressure. But yeah, if you ask anyone who's been with a partner for more than a few years, I think I, I don't think you're going to hear a lot of disagreement that it is nice to have your own space sometimes. I think when people are maybe single or I think when you're, before you're partnered in that way, you kind of maybe idealize sleeping next to a partner. And then when you're in a different place in your life, it just, you realize that you're not always going to fall in love with someone who's super compatible with you um, sleep-wise. Absolutely. Um so, you know, I like these little, I mean, I think we, I always called them sleepcations. It's a terrible word, but just sort of, and, and, you know, for some people, it's just kind of nice. Like you said, the COVID we recommended to a lot of couples, just make Tuesday night, the night you sleep apart. And, and that sure. way it's not some sort of nightly judgment. Okay. Well, we finished our episode of Bridgerton. Are we going to sleep together or not? You know, oh, we're not tonight. Okay. And well, I feel bad because why do you not want to sleep together tonight? But you did last night. So just make it. Tuesday night, we sleep apart. It's not negotiable. We can sit there and watch our show or read our books when it's time to sleep. One of us will go to this other place and the other person will stay here and that will be our Tuesday night ritual. So at least one seventh of the time, you you get, like you said, that little, little time to yourself. And it's kind of nice. I mean, maybe you want to stay up a little bit later and read, but the reading light bothers your partner or you know, the little humming sound or moaning sound that they make you know, is annoying. So I, I think those things can be nice and easy to build into a routine. Yeah, I really like that. That way, if it's just a policy, then it does take the emotion out of it. It's not a negotiation. It doesn't feel personal. It's just, this is what we do. Right. You don't it's like a date, Friday night, date night, Tuesday night, we sleep apart, you know, or maybe Thursday night, you sleep apart to make Friday night, date night, you know, a little bit little bit more special. Right, right. Yeah, absolutely. And I think just speaking from my own experience, I mean, sometimes when your partner is dealing with something like they have a really challenging work schedule, or they're dealing with a health problem that's making them tough to sleep with, whether it's restless legs, or they're snoring, or they have some other things going on, you're, I think it's easier for me as a partner to show up and support them and help them and figure out how we're going to get through this when I am rested. If I'm tired from <laughs> trying to get through the night, you know, um, or, or if you're just in a life stage with a newborn or, or a puppy or something like that, you're just going to be better able to show up for each other um, if you're sleeping apart rather than sleeping together. And then you can, the sooner the, you know, the better that you can actually get through that phase um, if you're if you're rested and firing on, on all cylinders, um, that's, that's how I feel. It, it's definitely nice to take those breaks. It does provide a little bit of data. You know, if somebody's not sleeping well, well, is it the mattress? Is it my partner? Is it just something that's going on with me intrinsically? So tonight I'll stay in the bed and you go to the guest bedroom. And then next Tuesday, I'll go to the guest bedroom. You stay in the big bed. And so then you can kind of debrief over cornflakes, you know? Uh, I felt pretty good last night away from you. Like, no offense, but I, I think you might be the issue or you're not. I, I sleep terribly away from you and, and being with you actually makes me sleep better. So sometimes that does uh, give a, a little bit of insight in terms of what might be going on with somebody's sleep. Right. Well, and I just, I've been in the mattress, the market for a mattress and now mattress toppers and all that. And so I'm reading a lot of reviews. There are so many reviews that people say, you know, I didn't realize that my mattress was bad. And then I slept on the guest room. We had this mattress in the guest room. I never slept there. I love it. Now I bought them for every room in my house, you know, like people, yeah, they, they have a chance to sleep in a different bed. And then they're all of a sudden like, wow, this is a different experience. So yeah. Absolutely. Uh, mattresses can make a big difference. It's just a difficult trigger to pull, you know, to spend $3,000 on a mattress you've tested out 
by lying in your street clothes in the showroom as the salesperson talks to you about some new technology inside the mattress. So, but, but it, you know, it really can make a difference. It's just, that's always such a hard question to answer when somebody says, well, you know, what mattress should I get, Chris? And <laughs> that really is very specific to the individual. So good for you for doing your homework and trying them out. Oh my gosh. It's, that's a whole, that's a whole other podcast. And in fact, I did another podcast talking to um, a reporter from Consumer Reports on mattresses and, and mattress technology, but reading mattress reviews is a good way to put yourself to sleep, actually. Yeah, I believe <laughs> there's it. I so believe many, it. there's just so many, oh my goodness. Um, <laughs> so I wanted to talk about restless movements at night. So if someone is kicking or moving around a lot at night, is that necessarily a sign of restless leg syndrome? There are other um, conditions that cause restless movements at night. Is that correct? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, you know, the movements at night are common in individuals with restless leg, but you know, t restless leg really refers to a condition that an individual is gonna feel when they're awake. Um, right, right. The restlessness. Now, about 70% of patients with restless leg will have these unusual little periodic movements during the night, but there are a lot of things that can cause restlessness at night. Um, a hard mattress causing pressure points on your knee or your hip, and so you're constantly sort of moving at night to kind of relieve that pressure and arthritis. Um, individuals who have nocturnal cramps um, can often move quite a bit during the night um, or just anything that disrupts sleep like sleep apnea. A lot of individuals come and eventually get diagnosed with sleep apnea simply because their partner says, you know, my God, sleeping next to him or her is really difficult because they're constantly moving around. Well, what's happening is they're waking up to catch their breath. And when they wake up, they shift around a little bit and they fall right back to sleep again. And they do it a hundred times during the night or more. So restlessness is always something to pay attention to. And, and maybe a good differentiator is asking the individual, do you feel restless? And if the individual says, no, I think I sleep wonderfully, but the partner is, is sort of observing a lot of restlessness, that might lead you down a different pathway than somebody saying, oh, I just feel, you know, starting when Jeopardy comes on, I just have a lot of difficulty sitting still um, and, and, and don't feel comfortable sitting down. I mean, I need to move around and need to, you know, walk. Um, those are sort of two different kind of phenotypes that might lead you to two different diagnoses. Right, right. And you had mentioned that restless leg syndrome was kind of misunderstood. What are people usually surprised to learn about RLS? I, mean, I think there's a lot of things. I mean, most people who come to our clinic for RLS do not come because of RLS. They, they come because they have insomnia or their sleep is disturbed or they're really tired during the day. So it's, it's pretty rare for people to come in and say, you know, I think pretty obvious to them it's, it's very hereditary and often runs in families. So a lot of times if mom has it, the kid has it, but it's really just tends to manifest itself as really disturbed sleep. Um, and, and, and the other thing I think people misunderstand about it is that you don't need a sleep study to diagnose it. Um, it's really a clinical diagnosis. So for everybody who's listening to this podcast, if in the evening, you feel a sense of restlessness or unease in your legs. It doesn't feel good to sit still, like you're constantly twitching your feet, moving around, standing up, stretching, um, and it's making it difficult for you to sleep. That essentially is the diagnosis of restless leg. You don't need a sleep study. In fact, you know, there are four FDA-approved medications for it. I find that those medications are so good at what they do that taking them is almost diagnostic, meaning that if you took the medication, you came back to my clinic and said, wow, I've, I've never felt like this when I slept. I've never you know, felt this awake when I got up. It was probably restless leg because the drugs really don't help much of anything outside of RLS. And the other thing that I would, I, I would say is that restless leg is an unusual condition for a lot of reasons. One is it's nocturnal. So it's an unusual situation when somebody says, I feel this symptom, but only at night. You know, most conditions that we deal with don't have a watch. 
Um, So if somebody says, I'm restless, but only really from eight o'clock in the evening till two in the morning. Um, You know, a lot of people with restless legs say things like when the alarm clock goes off, I feel like I was just starting to get some sleep or my naps are much better than my sleep at night. So that, 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 that tendency for it to only really happen at night is really misunderstood. The other thing is that it really is a sporadic condition. So people will have, you know, three or four really bad nights in a row. And for no reason, they'll have five or six really good nights. And that can occur throughout the duration of the condition, which means makes treatment really difficult. Because a lot of times if people go through a bad spell and contact their doctor, the doctor might say, well, here, just take more of your medication. And the terrible thing about the medications that we use for restless leg are they're extremely helpful. They can be life-changing for people. Jumping in here to tell you that we experienced some technical difficulties during the recording due to the windstorms that were happening that week. We will be right back with you. Thanks. All right. So you were saying there's a number of medications that can work um, really well for RLS. There are, and and they work so well, and they're so, so specific to what they do, they can almost be diagnostic, meaning if a patient comes back and says that they work, we've probably made the right diagnosis. And the medications can be really a blessing and a curse. They're extremely helpful for people with RLS, but if a physician really doesn't know how to manage the medications, they can, over time, actually make the condition worse. So, you know, if somebody's being treated for RLS, um, you really want to make sure you've got a clinician who, who really has experience in dealing with the condition because it's not as simple as we hear take this medication for at night before you go to bed and it'll, it'll fix you right up. There's, there's really some, some art to it, I think. Right. Um, and I, my understanding is that this is a condition that also responds um, to lifestyle modifications like diet and exercise. Can you talk about that a little bit um, with diet and and nutrition? And are there other things that people can do um, maybe if they're not ready to try medication or maybe um, in conjunction with medication? Sure. So it's an, the condition itself does tend to kind of ebb and flow. Um, so for a lot of individuals, if they can kind of ride out the bad days, good days almost always follow. We always tell people that the restless leg is like the stock market that, you know, don't get too upset. If you have a couple bad nights, it's probably going to turn around before you know it. Things that you can do, you mentioned exercise. Exercise is interesting. Some people really find it to be extremely helpful. Like if they don't exercise and they're going to have a difficult night, other people find that exercise can actually make the condition worse. Um, And a lot of it has to do with timing. Like people can exercise in the morning, but evening exercise, you know, makes them worse. I've got a whole other, you know, complement of people who have an exercise routine they do right before they go to bed. And I'll never forget one of my first patients um, had a Nordic track, this little alpine ski exerciser thing right next to his bed. And he would do it for 15 minutes, jump off the Nordic track right into his bed to go to sleep. Um, So exercise can definitely be a positive. Um, And I think most people who have the condition who've been diagnosed kind of figure out where exercise fits in their routine. Um, Hot baths and hot showers are often extremely helpful. In fact, I would venture a guess that individuals who have hot tubs are more likely to have restless leg than people who are not. I find that a lot of people with RLS go in on a hot tub purchase because it really makes their legs feel good before they go to bed. Um, Weighted blankets um, are sort of a novel way to deal with it. I think weighted blankets can help a lot of people with their sleep. Um, if you go to the dentist and they put that lead apron on you, if you like the way that feels, you might like a a weighted blanket, but for a lot of people, they just like a sense of weight on their legs at night. Um, in fact, I I saw an article and, and a mother had written, my child loves to sleep with many blankets on top of him. What do you think that means? And certainly there could be some sort of, you know, ASD or, or sensory integration disorder, but, 
my thought was I, I bet he has restless leg and, and likes the feeling of weight. In fact, one of my patients told me that she dreams about sleeping on her box spring with her mattress on top of her. Oh, it's like an extreme drink. weighted blanket. Yeah. So, you know, so and a lot of times, you know, we were talking about sharing a bed. Patients like to have their legs underneath their partner. You know, they want oh, their partner yeah. lying down on their legs or a lot of blankets. So th those things can be very helpful. Iron is a big one. If, you know, sort of medicinally, you know, individuals who have low iron or specifically low serum ferritin can be more at risk for having RLS, as can pregnant women, um, individuals with renal disease. So there are some conditions that are more likely to, to have RLS. And like I mentioned, uh, there's a familial element to a lot of it as well. So when you see one person in a family, you'll often find multiple people in a family who have it. Right. And um, the weighted blanket is a kind of a something that you could do and it doesn't necessarily have to affect your partner or you could have a weighted Absolutely. blanket for your child, you know, so that's something that you that could be a solution for people who share a bed as well. And I, I get it sometimes. I mean, it's pretty, I would say, you know, I kind of have a bad run of it once or twice a month, particularly if I'm traveling at night. I always find that like if I have a car that's picking me up to take me somewhere, if we're driving at night, it's just maddening. It never happens when I drive, but if I'm the passenger, it just feels awful. So I've got a weighted blanket. And so on the nights where I feel like, oh, this is kind of feeling it it feels wonderful to get into a you know just take it to the guest bed and drag this thing it feels like a dead body into the <laughs> guest bedroom and then throw it on top of me and it really i mean it's really heavy like to switch over from your back to your side takes a little bit of work um but that sort of feeling pinned down is 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 really helpful it's very soothing and is there a brand of weighted blanket that you recommend i, I like blankwell um, I just think they, they make a really nice one in the pockets. So, some of them have bigger pockets, almost like you've taken relatively larger bean bags and sewn them together. This is a little bit smaller. It just kind of has a more uniform feel. I mean, there's a lot of good ones out there. Lifetime Sensory Solutions, Blankwell. Um, there's a company called Chili Pad that actually makes one that has these tubes that run through it so you can actually cool it down. So if you lived in you know, Florida and you wanted to use a weighted blanket, but it was really hot, the, the blanket will actually cool itself you know, significantly. So, but I, you know, I, I don't think that you can, you can go wrong with any of them. And most of them have the ability to sort of gauge the weight of the blanket. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's really interesting. I haven't tried... Um, a weighted blanket, it sounds like, I'm not sure. It just seems a little confining to me, but I've never experienced restless legs myself. So. And I that's, think and it's really interesting. I mean, most people are very black or white about their response to a weighted blanket. So I actually keep one in my clinic and, and my wife sounds just like you. She just doesn't like it. It kind of makes her feel confined and sort of pinned in. Um, so it's, it's most people, you know, when you toss one on on them, they know immediately, oh, this is the coolest. I really like the way this feels or please get this off of me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, There's not well, a lot of middle ground there. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't sound like it. Um, so you mentioned timing. I'm curious about your take on sort of the timing of our different sleep stages in terms of when some of these disruptive behaviors like like um, restlessness or snoring, those types of things might happen. Are they more likely to happen during certain sleep stages that occur at different parts of the night? Because just anecdotally, it does seem like snoring kicks off right when someone falls asleep and then quiets down in the middle of the night and then, and then rears up again in the um, you know, early pre-dawn hours, which is kind of the, the lighter stages of sleep. And that's when you, as a bed partner, are more likely to wake up as well. And it's harder to go back to sleep during those stages of the night. Um, I'm just curious because it seems like maybe there's things people could do with kind of altering their schedule a little bit. Maybe if your partner has that kind of snoring phase early in the night, maybe you're just playing around with the schedules. Maybe one of you goes to bed later, one of you goes to bed earlier. Um, just wanted to get your take on that. Yeah, I mean, you can learn a lot by trying to sort of 
pin a symptom or a problem down into either the first or the second half of the night. I mean, that, like you said, our, our sleep is sort of constructed where most of our deep sleep happens in that first two to three hours. And then the majority of our dream sleep or REM sleep is happening in the last two to three hours. Um, even those cycles of sleep happen about once every 90 minutes. There's a definite difference between the first and second half of the night. So if your kid wakes up, you know, 20 minutes after you put him down, he's screaming around, he's probably having a night terror. If he's waking up about an hour before the alarm clock goes off, it's probably a nightmare, you know, either an arousal out of deep sleep in the first half of the night or REM sleep in the second. Snoring is interesting. Most people really get into their snoring in the second half of the night or during cycles of REM sleep because our bodies are paralyzed at that time. So all the muscles that are trying to keep an airway open and stable are, are probably not working. So if an individual is hopping into bed and snoring immediately, then tends to kind of quiet down and then really is you know, tearing it up at the end of the night, you know, that that's always classic for the snoring in the beginning of the night is the you know the red wine you have with dinner, the couple beers you have when you got home from work, uh, causing a lot of relaxation of the upper airway. That gets metabolized and you move through the middle part of the night. And when you hit that REM cycles towards the end of the night, the snoring can really pick up again. And like you said, the partner's sleep is often lighter and more susceptible to, to awakening at that time. So you know the snore, the sleep apnea patient usually has a lot more difficulty in the second half of the night versus the restless leg patient is generally going to have a lot more difficulty in the first half of the night. They have trouble getting to sleep because they're restless. They fall asleep and, and they have a lot of those periodic limb movements we talked about early in the night. Then usually something around two or three o'clock in the morning happens. Dopamine levels in our brain start to rise and those restless movements start to go away, which is why a lot of times Patients with RLS will say the second half of their night is much better, and they'll often do things about it. When you, when you look at restless leg patients, there's a lot of them that gravitate towards shift work. They like that right, evening right. shift that gets off at 11 o'clock, embed it to wake up at, you know, whatever, 10 or 11. They're, they're constantly trying to move their sleep away from that period of restlessness, um, so they do tend to be kind of night owls a little bit. Um, and they'll often tell you, yeah, you know, if I stay up till three and then go to bed and get up and go to work, I'll come home and try to take a nap, you know, when I get home in the afternoon. And that's really good sleep because they're actually sleeping at a time of relatively high dopamine levels in our brain. Our brain's dopamine levels start to drop, like I said, around seven o'clock. And then kind of start to rise again around two and three. So that nadir, that ditch around midnight is really the worst time for the average patient with RLS to sleep. Okay. Yeah, that does make sense. Yeah. Um, it does. I mean, with people that have, um, the, with people who snore, um, taking it back to snoring for a second, it does seem like it is like the second that they fall asleep and then it, it, drops off for a little bit and then it picks back up. Kind of picks back um, up, yeah. But you know, you you like you'll wake someone up and tell them, hey, you're snoring, and they'll say, I wasn't even asleep yet. <laughs> you're like, that's yes, right. you were. <laughs> yeah, that's so we have several secret rules in our clinic. And one of the rules is, or I should say laws, is that sleep perception and sleep reality are two completely different things. And that's right. a great example of it. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so you, you mentioned mattresses. Um, do you have other things that you've seen work for people? Um, mattresses that maybe isolate motion. Motion isolation is a big term that I saw in the mattress reviews. <laughs> so it's top of mind for me. A lot of mattresses claim to have most motion isolation properties. Um, are there things that are working for your patients in terms of mattresses and that type of thing? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's important. Um, I, I, you can take a little cup of water and set it on the mattress where your partner would be and kind of jump up and down and move around and see what the level of the water is doing. Um, I mean, a lot of the newer mattresses have, the, have that sort of built into them versus the older coiled mattresses usually transmitted quite a bit of motion. Um, and if you had a you know, the old water bed, it was you know, the, the worst. Oh God. How do people sleep on water beds? I don't understand. <laughs> That's one of those that things is the... where it was just like the technology was so cool 
even though it had nothing to do with comfort or good sleep. It was just, I mean, I, I, I think everybody had an, a, a, a memory of as a kid going to somebody's house who had one of those real water beds and it was just the craziest thing like to get on it and move around and you just thought that was the best and oh gosh yeah i remember that but um no i mean i said so i think transferring motion if you're sleeping with somebody else is very important you know in terms of making sure that their movements aren't you know kind of jostling you during the night temperature is probably a big one as well you know, a lot of the newer mattresses um are really paying attention to that and trying to give people a bit of a cooler feel we did some experiments with precision nutrition recently where a group of subscribers uh drank alcohol at night for two weeks and then stopped for two weeks and another group made their room really dark for two weeks and you know, lighter for two weeks and then another group made their bedroom cooler for two weeks and the, the temperature really seemed to influence the sleep of the participants in this little informal study much more than the alcohol and the light, which I thought was really interesting. So I think manufacturers are really trying to create a cooler experience for sleepers, particularly since a lot of the memory foam and that kind of latex technology does tend to trap heat a little bit. Um, so that's always kind of a concern that you want that sort of memory foam comfort and support, but not feeling like you're kind of baking uh, when you're sleeping on it. So, um, you know, organic materials, I think a lot of people are paying more attention to and, um, you know, what's, the, what's in the mattress, what's it made out of, will dust mites be able to live in a mattress? You know, a long time ago, we used to do mattress autopsies where you take a 20-year-old oh, you know, yeah. mattress and open it up with a knife, and it was just truly terrifying. Like, I'm, I, I, there's an image in my head right now that I'll never be able to get out um, of a perfectly normal-looking mattress on the outside. So it's kind of like if you've, ever, if you've ever pulled up carpet in your house, it's kind of a, a kind of a show, um, but yeah. the same. So I think those are sort of the big ones. And then you know, does your base move? Um, and I think yeah, the, yeah, that's a big one. Yeah, and I think the new thing now is does your mat does your bed monitor you? Like, is it is it giving you any feedback or information? So I think that's sort of the next you know new new. Uh, metric of mattresses is oh the mattress is monitoring your sleep air quality room temperature humidity body position heart rate and giving you feedback about your sleep or reminding you okay it's time to go to sleep and which is nice because yeah i kind of come and go with fitness monitors i get really into the one wear it on my wrist all the time right and then i forget about it, I charge it and forget about it and then all of a sudden oh, i want to check my sleep again and the cool thing about the bed is it's always monitoring your sleep, whether you're interacting with the app or not. So if at some point you want to know, oh gosh, I feel like I've been sleeping poorly lately. Is it any worse? And I was sleeping back in November, you know, all that data is there if you want it. So I think that's, that's another thing that's relatively new. Right, right. Yeah. No, that is interesting. I guess I didn't think about that component of a smart bed as far as the tracking, because I don't like, I don't ever sleep with my watch on. I just, when I'm camping, I do. And for some reason, I don't know why, but, um, when I'm at home, I don't like sleeping with my watch on. And I've also, you know, I, um, there's the, the ring that's a sleep tracker and just not, yeah. I just don't want to do it. I mean, I, I it's a good product alone. and I've heard good things about it, but yeah. Yeah. No, you're not alone. It's interesting to me. I, I've always kind of, you know, I was where I, I work with a lot of athletes. I'm like, here, just, you know, put this on your wrist and you wear it. Oh, I don't want to. But why not? I don't really like wearing stuff on my body at night. And so it's really interesting. I mean, I thought, well, that's kind of interesting. Like, what does it matter? I just put it on like your little ring or little wristwatch. And a lot of people really don't like those kinds of things. And, and so, you know, the, the, the ability to have it completely passive, it's in your bed. You don't have to put it on, wear it, charge it, do anything with it is really attractive. Um, much more so than I ever would have thought when these things came out. I remember when this company came called Zio came out. They made this really, really good sleep sensing headband. And I thought, oh my God, this is going to sell a million. It's going to be incredible. And nobody bought it because nobody wanted to wear a headband at night. And when people got data from it, they weren't sure what to do with it. Like, okay, I got a score of 58. <laughs> is that good? Is that bad? I don't know. Like, so uh. it's, it's, you know, I think the sleep technology is really 
evolving and and you know what consumers want and what the technology can give you is finally kind of coming together a little bit more seamlessly i think it is yeah it's really cool to watch actually and see and if you i know you work um quite a bit with athletes and i that's an interest of mine as well i'm a marathon runner and and all of that stuff and my husband is as well and so we um we have our data we have all of our data but we don't really track sleep all that much and um then when we do it is like kind of like well yeah what, what do you do with that how useful is the data really um and if you talk to most sleep coaches or the the folks that i interview will just as often recommend that people track their sleep with a pencil and paper um, but it is interesting to see the trends over time. And um, I do think the technology is really coming around and they're figuring out how to do more with it and make it more user-friendly and actionable for and that, actionable that's, for that's really the most important thing. I mean, I think number one is is getting rid of that human error. You know, I'm looking at your diary and there's a bunch of nights where you said you slept two hours, but you were in bed for 10. My, my right. first guess is, yeah, you didn't sleep two hours. You slept way more than that, even though that's what you felt. And there's value in looking at what somebody thinks is happening. But, you know, the technology is taking that human error out. And it's actionable, like you said, particularly for, you know, endurance athletes. You know, baseball players stand around and, you know, shag some fly balls and whatnot. I think sometimes you're like, well, you know, but over an entire season, when you start looking at more the endurance aspect of a sport, it really does a good job. I think sleep can provide really interesting insight into when should you really push your training and when should you maybe back off a little bit, which I always think is the hardest thing for, you know, real elite driven athletes to do to, to figure out that your running's not where you want it to be. Your times are not great right now. Therefore you should not run tomorrow. That, that always, you know, it's always like with, with athletes, it's always like you struck out four times in the game. So sure enough, you get to this training center at five o'clock, there he is in the batting cage, as if the hitting off the tee is the problem. You know, after being a baseball player for 30 years, he went 0 for 4 in one game, and it's because he needs more time in the batting cage. You no, know, he probably needed to do is sleep in. You know, so right. I think a lot of the new technology looking at sleep or looking at heart rate variability and things of that nature are really starting to come together and kind of redefine how training happens. You know, that you had a bad game, so we're getting to the rink early. We're going to skate you to death the next day because you all are terrible. You seem so tired out there. I know right. what we'll do. We'll skate you to death the next day. I think people are being a lot more enlightened about that and, and maybe the monitor in your bed can help with that. Right. Yep. Absolutely. That recovery portion is um, so difficult. And for driven people who want to get better, it's the hardest thing to make yourself absolutely. do. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, with the mattresses, though, it is really interesting because um, I, we were, um, my husband and I were getting to the point where we knew we needed to replace our mattress. And I happened to have an interview with Honey Array of Consumer Reports, and she does their mattress reporting. And so we were talking about that. And it was just during my discussion with her, you know, and I've been working in this space, you know, writing about sleep, covering sleep for more than a decade. And it wasn't really until I talked to her that I, you know, realized that hybrid mattresses or coil mattresses make up such a big component of the market because all I ever see are ads for Casper and things like, you know, foam mattresses. <laughs> and so I didn't realize that, that, you know, there's this big component. Most mattresses actually are, are hybrids now or, or um, coil and um, foam and different, different components. Um, but there's a coil component in there and hadn't slept on a spring mattress in years, but started to look into them more. And um, then the one thing that I did see is um, that they are a little bit, actually, they're supposed to be great for motion isolation. And that made sense to me intuitively because just um, my husband, he's he's gone through phases of restless leg as well and more from a response to a medication that he was taking and it kind of, it comes and goes, yeah. but, um, but it was something, I'm a very light sleeper and it was disruptive enough that we were, you know, looking into solutions for it. And so um, the foam mattress, it was really comfortable, but it did, every movement that he had just transferred straight over to me. But, but part of it, as you mentioned, was the base of our bed too. We had a box spring and there was just nothing for, I mean, and I'm, you know, I'm not a physicist, but 
just intuitively, there was nowhere for the vibrations from his kicking to go other than shaking the whole bed, you know? And so what was, what has worked for us is so, um, instead of, so we have a king size bed, two twin extra long mattresses are the same size as a king size bed. So we have two twin extra long mattresses together under one sheet. They're hybrid. Um, and we also got a platform bed that doesn't have a box spring anymore. And so when he moves his, the, his motions are absorbed by the springs and there's no box spring to shake. And so I, I can, I don't even know that someone's sleeping next to me. Like that's how big of a difference it makes. And I'm a, I'm an extremely light sleeper. It's frustrating for people who live with me because I will wake up, you know, I I mean, I'm just a very light sleeper, Um, but it's been pretty amazing. And you would never, you know, it's the two mattresses are next to each other. They're under one sheet. You would never, ever know that they're two mattresses. Um, they're the two of the same mattress, but you could do two different mattresses if you and your partner had different preferences. I mean, as long as they're the same height. Um, yeah, but that that's our solution and it's it's working. So a lot of people do that. And they're, they're, that's a great solution. There's even mattresses now that come in like one case that are actually two separate mattresses inside yeah. like the zippered wool case. And I've always thought that people like you, that there should be a sheet that's sort of sewn together at the bottom and maybe a quarter of the way up, and then it separates into two twin sheets. So as he's moving around, thrashing on his side of the bed, and he's pulling on his 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 sheet. Oh, yeah, I see what you mean. You know what I mean? Like it's like a Y. You know, so the Y is tucked in at the bottom, and where it separates, you kind of have your own sheet, even though it's tethered together, kind of near the bottom. So his pulling on the sheet doesn't pull on you and and wake you up. So you have true you know, total separation. But like you said, it's all made up underneath your duvet or comforter and nobody would ever know. Right. Yeah. And so, I mean, it isn't necessarily proximity because somebody can be next to you. Absolutely. It's what you're, it's the sleeping surface and the different dynamics and motion dynamics that are going on with the, the box spring and the mattress and the springs. And so I would definitely encourage people to like, if, if you, think that you can only sleep on a foam mattress or you think that a certain type of mattress is the only type that works, like look into different things that are out there because there are definitely solutions out there that can, can work better. Um, and I, yeah, I'm. And it, and it frees you up to choose the mattress that you really like. Exactly. Exactly. It's a completely different brand. As long as you're dealing with the same height, 10 inch, 12 and a half inch, the thickness of the, the mattress, as long as you can kind of come to an agreement about that, um, then yeah, you can have truly unique mattresses underneath the same, you know, bottom sheet. It's, it doesn't even matter. Yeah, absolutely. And I think getting rid of the box spring was a big thing too. And I think I, I know a lot of beds seem to be moving in that direction as more platform beds. So. Yeah. yeah. Because the newer smart beds are designed to be used without a, a box spring. So absolutely. Yeah, very, very glad to, to send our, our box spring on its way. <laughs> Well, what about the person who is the really light sleeper in the relationship? You know, I mean, I don't think the responsibility should be all on, on, you know, the, the person who's kicking or the person who is snoring. Um, What are there things that that person can do to kind of um, coexist more peacefully with, with the other people in their, their household or their partner? Yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, to, you know, sort of an exploration of what what it what's making that individual a light sleeper, you know, in my experience, saying that an individual is a light sleeper is kind of like saying somebody's an inefficient sleeper. And, and what I mean by that is we all have a certain intrinsic genetic sleep need. And generally speaking, the individual who 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 needs more um is often getting the better end of the deal. So if you need nine hours and your husband needs seven and you all decide to go to bed and spend nine hours in bed, if he needs seven, that becomes very difficult to sort of make it through that time. Um, So, you know, I've always joked, I can take any light sleeper, make them a deep sleeper, just put them in the United States Naval Academy and, you know, go to bed at midnight after a grueling day of 22 credit hours and you're up at five o'clock in the pool 
um, a lot of times depth of sleep has to do with sort of motivation and opportunity. Oh, my kid's a picky eater. Well, put your kid in a room and put a couple crackers in there and see how picky is in three days. Do you know what I mean? Like, not that you would ever do that, but just primary drives like hunger, thirst, and 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 sleepiness can be manipulated. So if somebody says, look, I just, I'm up and down all night long. I constantly wake up with any sound and I'm often waking up an hour before my alarm clock and I can't get back to sleep. Sure, you could do a sleep study, you know, to go see a sleep specialist, make sure there's nothing wrong with your sleep that's fragmenting it and making you wake up. Or another thing you could do is just back your bedtime up 30 minutes. Instead right. of going to bed yeah, at 10 o'clock, totally. go to bed at 1030. Now, you got to keep your wake up time the same. You can't move it out too. And you've got to avoid naps and don't change anything else. But you're basically saying to your brain, hey, brain, it doesn't seem like you really want all this sleep opportunity that I'm giving you. So I'm just going to take some of it away. I mean, if you made your kids entire pizzas for dinner every night and every night they only ate a couple slices, eventually, as you're throwing pizza away left and right, you might say, well, maybe I'll just make them a slice or two. And if they want more, I'll give it to them. But it doesn't really seem, it seems like I'm giving them a lot more than what they intrinsically want. And for some people, that, that can be the underlying cause of, you know, what is light sleeping, um, you know, I, but, you know, so it, it can be more complicated than that. But for a lot, you know, it's like I didn't run into a whole lot of people in residency who were light sleepers. You know, when we were on call, we would sleep through pagers. We were desperately telling nurses, look, if you page me and I don't come, just go bang <laughs> on the door. Come get me. Like, I mean, I'm I not just, dead. I'm just about asleep. About a month ago, <laughs> I slept through a closet collapsing about 10 feet from my head. And my wife said, I'm truly disturbed but, I mean, I've got a picture of it. It, it, it looks like an earthquake. Like a, it was like one too many, you know, garments or something. And the whole thing just absolutely looked, was destroyed. The whole closet was absolutely destroyed. Your wife's and, like, what else I would you sleep through? You slept through that. <laughs> um, I remember, you know, one time our kids came down, they had bloody noses or something. And they were up and the lights were on. They were trying to get the blood to stop. And she said, at one point, I just looked over at you and you did not move. So I've got a lot of theories about light sleeping people and deep sleeping people. I think a lot of it is there, there is a choice there, uh, you know, meaning that if I wake up in the middle of the night, I don't really care. And if I can't get back to sleep, I don't really care about that either. It doesn't really bother me. It, you know, for a lot of people, if they're anxious, like, oh, my gosh, I don't want to get up and go to sleep. You wake up and struggle to get back to sleep because I have a big day tomorrow. And, and I'm really in the middle of something here and I really can't afford to have a difficult night. That fear of not being able to go back to sleep can sometimes create a little bit of a lighter staging of somebody's sleep and make it difficult. So it's a very interesting thing. So, I, you know, I would say if you're a light sleeper, maybe the first thing to do is, you know, back your bed to up a half hour and see what happens. Um, I think that, that might be the thing to do. And, and um, if, if it continues, then, you know, talking to a sleep specialist and, you know, doing a sleep study. If it's something you've dealt with for a long period of time, there could be something like periodic leg movements, acid reflux at night, a little bit of sleep apnea, you know, there's 88 diagnosable sleep disorders. So maybe you've got one of them. Right. Yeah, absolutely. That's good advice. And yeah, I can definitely attest to it. Um, limiting that, that, that window for sleep um, a little bit um, and playing with that bedtime, but keeping the, what the wake up time consistent. That's a game changer for sure. It can be for some people, and you know, and we're we're in a culture right now where it's you know get eight hours or you get Alzheimer's by the weekend. I mean, that's, I think that's kind of <laughs> what people are thinking, you know. And so, it, it feels wrong to 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 seek seven or six and a half. But again, it, you know, asking somebody how much sleep they need is actually is like asking them how much food they need. Well, who are you? I mean, are you a marathon runner? Are you a retired accountant? Are you a football player, a gymnast, like swimmer? These things matter. You can't just say, well, 2,000 calories. Uh, that might be too, way too much for some people and way too little for others. And so sometimes we kind of distill, how much sleep should we be getting, Chris? And well, I don't know. Who are you? And, and what did your parents do for a living? Well, my mother was a neurosurgeon and my father was a you know, a trial attorney. Well, I'll bet you're a short sleeper, you know, because I bet that's, you know, all doctors tend to be like that, it seems like, in and, and certain occupations. So maybe you've got the gene from mom that doesn't really uh, 
creates a situation where you don't really need as much sleep as the average person your age. And so I think we're, we're in kind of a place where we're very fearful about not getting enough sleep. And so some people kind of treat their bed kind of like the bus station. Well, I want to get there before the sleep bus comes. I don't want to miss it. You know, so more time in bed's good. And, and, and it's amazing when people come to my office and say it takes them two hours to fall asleep every night. And I'm like, well, what do you go to bed right. at nine o'clock? Right. Why do you go to bed at nine? I don't know. It's just my bedtime. <laughs> well, okay. Why? Like, that's like saying your lunchtime is 930 and you go to the restaurant and you sit there for two hours before you order. I don't think that is your lunch. You've designated it your lunchtime, but it doesn't seem like you're ever hungry at 930. Maybe 11 or 12 would be a better lunchtime for you. So we get hung up in these things and we don't have great dialogues about them sometimes. And people just are like, oh, well, I never really thought about getting seven hours of sleep. I always thought since my sleep was bad, I should go to bed earlier, which is the worst thing you should do. If you're kind of a light sleeper, going to bed earlier is just giving your brain more opportunity to not sleep. Right. Yeah. And those folks are probably the people that you work with the most often, I would think, because that can create so many sleep problems or perceptions of sleep problems. If you are somebody who needs a little bit less sleep than the norm, but you don't know it because as a, I, I work with parents as a sleep coach and that's, those are the parents that come to me are the parents with kids who need a little less sleep than average because they were told to put their kids to bed at seven and that they should be sleeping until seven in the morning and also taking two hour naps a day. And <laughs> it's just, the math just doesn't work out. And no, it's, once yeah, you start really playing around with that, binary, and, yeah. yeah, showing them like, the right bedtime for your child is the time at which they will go to bed and fall asleep within about 15 minutes. You, if Absolutely. your bedtime is taking an hour, then it's just the wrong bedtime. And it, but it creates so many problems for parents and families. And sometimes it is just, it's a math issue. Like your kid needs to be awake for a certain number of hours before they're tired enough to fall asleep. That's just the way it goes. And, right. you know, uh, and it's so math and predictability, like right, your kid's right. getting to sleep. He's just not sleeping when you think he's going to sleep. So, I mean, when our kids were relatively young, we say, you can go to bed whenever you want to, we don't care. Now you need to be in your bedroom and there should be no screens in there, but you want to look at comic books or play with dolls or look at trading cards until midnight. I'd go right ahead. It's not going to change the next day. So we really worked hard to create. We want you to value sleep, but I don't want you to be scared of not getting it or scared of me catching you awake in bed with a comic book at night. Like, no, like, no, you just do what you need to do, but just don't bother me in the process. So unless you smell smoke or see somebody you don't recognize, just stay in your bedroom. But in terms of when you get in bed to turn the light out, I trust you, you Mr. Eight-Year-Old, to make the right choice. And we just always woke them up around the same time with a smile, you know, nothing punitive, but this idea that, you know, I didn't sleep well last night, therefore I don't get to go to school and you can take me around lunchtime. No, it's not going to happen. That's right. So, right. <laughs> so you gotta, you, you, and so the stress level, like you said, for, for young parents is really problematic because, you know, what might be right for that person that you visit with every Tuesday at the coffee shop, who's got a kid about your age could be very different from what your child needs. So really working hard, like you said, to figure out the math and understand what your child needs. Look to yourself, look to your parents and siblings and your husband's or, or wife's parents and siblings. And you know, if people in the family are all late night people and kind of short sleepers, or if they're all early morning people and kind of long sleepers, that's very much gonna influence your child most likely. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. And there, I mean, there are people who are on the other end of the spectrum who need more sleep and they do fine. Like I right. hardly They're ever great, hear from those people. Well, that's what right. we, were, we were laughing about that. You know, these poor kids who eventually get diagnosed or adults, you know, get diagnosed with narcolepsy. They're always told they're excellent sleepers. Right, because they're just sleeping all over the place and, right. and nobody questions it until they start failing trigonometry. So, but yeah, it, it's interesting what we, I, I've always been fascinated with good sleeper, bad sleeper. That'd be a good name for a book, I think. And right, yeah. that metric, is it how the kid functions the next day? Is it how quickly he falls asleep? Is it, you know, what is it? What, what do you mean when you say good? Or is it the duration they sleep or how many times they wake up? And so I love those things because you know, the kids are hearing them all the time. You, you oh, like right. play the sure. and run around the, you know, the, on the, playground and you know Timmy's a great sleeper I wish Caitlin were a good sleeper and I love the idea that you know we kind of build our sleep identities from the time we're a little until they you know walk into my office when they're 35 years old I've always been a bad sleeper 
Interesting. What was that? You look good to me. Like you look fine. Like what, what does that mean to you? And how have you defined that over the years? And you know, uh, yeah, the doctor told me one time, we never talk about sleep or sex. So whatever you're doing in those realms, you think is normal until you get information otherwise, you know? So I've always thought that was probably, probably a good way to think about it. Yeah, no, absolutely. So now That's you're doing this podcast are, and people are, are so talking about this is good. Yeah, yeah. No, I think absolutely. Those labels are so interesting. And maybe if somebody, instead of labeling them a bad sleeper, if they grew up thinking, well, I'm a short sleeper, or I just need a little less sleep, you know, and then they have that information about themselves that can be helpful as they're going through different life phases and just knowing that about themselves, you know, that's so incredibly useful. Absolutely. You bet. Yeah. Well, we have covered a lot here. Is there anything else that you wanted to mention that we didn't get to? No, um, just I appreciate the. I, I did write a book. It's coming out in August about kids and sleep called The Rested Child. Um, so I'm really excited about that. I wanted to write that many years ago, but accidentally kind of wrote my other book first. But I, I like that book too. But the, the kid book is I was, I've always felt like there's a lot of books out there about how to get your baby to sleep. But if you've got a 14 year old who's got circadian rhythm disorders or you think might have narcolepsy, I've always felt like that resource was a little lacking. So I'm really excited about this book because it's really about kids from birth to college. You know, at that point, you know, if you haven't figured out your sleep, you're screwed, I guess. But anyway, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> no, so yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to that. Um, and then my other book's called The Sleep Solution. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm sort of a country boy from Virginia. And I try to write in that vein where I would, the way that I would talk to people. So it's not overly scientific and maybe uh, a, a bit too humorous at times, but, not, but I'm not doing it to make fun of people for sure. Just trying to make people who are struggling with their sleep understand that the sun will rise tomorrow. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I have a series on the podcast of about sleeping teenagers because oh, good for um, you. yeah, it's, a, it, it is undercovered and people, yep. They, they kind of think, um, well, I think that there's just, once people get through those baby years, they just don't even want to talk about it anymore. People think if their kids aren't sleeping by then, then there's something deeply wrong with them. And people just kind of hide it, I think, if their kids are still struggling with sleep, but so many do. And the teen years, oh my gosh, how old are your kids? So I've got a 16-year-old who's a junior in high school. I have a 19-year-old who's a plebe at the Naval Academy, and I have a 22-year-old daughter who is finishing up her degree at the University of Virginia. So, so you know, the teen years are a doozy for, for sleep. They for are. Sure. They are. I mean, so, you know, I, it's like what I always tell teams that uh, we want you to come in and help our players with sleep. And I always tell them, you know, the most important thing you can do is just create a culture within your organization or within your home where you talk about sleep, you know, not in a judgmental way, just how did you sleep last night? And, and I think that, like you said, it's interesting you mentioned that parents after a certain period of time, they don't really want to talk about sleep anymore. And there's a lot of push and pull there. And I think technology is really problematic for a lot of young people and parents just don't know what to do with it sometimes. And I think school is tough. School is a, High school is so much harder now than it was when I went through it. So many demands on kids. I think COVID has created just an absolute kind of disaster scene when it comes to kids' sleep that I think we'll be dealing with. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I think you're going to be a very busy individual, even just with, with teens and sleep, just because we're, we're not doing our kids a lot of... Uh, a real service here at this point because there's nothing really stretching their lives anymore. It's just in your room, either on class or watching TikTok videos or sleeping or eating or whatever you do in your bed. So it's, 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 it's a real problem. So it's good that people are just talking about it. I think that's the first step is just trying to create conversation every now and then with your kid about how do you feel about your sleep and are there ways we could support it? And are you getting enough exercise and, you know, those things are, are just essential. Yep, absolutely. I think that's kind of, I think that's the theme is, you know, to creating that dialogue, whether it's with your partner or with your kids, with other people in the household and just being honest about, you know, what what your needs are and what your hopes are for them and, and kind of just keeping keeping that communication 
going. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And where can people learn more about you and your work? Um, I'm on Instagram and Twitter a lot. And I try to post good articles and good podcasts like this on there. It's at sports sleep doc, S P O R T S L E P D O C. Um, both my, my old book and my new book are available on Amazon for pre-order or through penguin publishing or wherever you buy books. Um, uh, and then I've got some things kind of working on, uh, um, excited with uh, sleep.com, uh, this year. So, uh, kind of be looking out on their platform uh, for some cool information. Um, yeah, I mean, just put sleep and Dr. Winter and something will pop up in your Google browser. Right, right. And then, and then out, so. will you make your next book about sleep and athletes? Because that's a big topic too. <laughs> I will, and I will definitely call you. I, I've kind of been, I yeah. never felt like the time, I don't feel like I'm quite to the point where it's time to write that book. But my guess is, I, I, there's another book I want to write next, but I, my guess is after that, um, there's so many good people who are sort of moving into the world of sleep and athletics that I think that I'm rapidly becoming obsolete. Um, so uh, <laughs> I think it's quite time to, to, to write the book and let younger, smarter people um, take over that mantle, maybe. Right, uh, right. Well, there's, there's a lot there. Old sports sleep doc. I'll, I'll, put, I'll change my Twitter <laughs> and put the, put the word old in there. That'll be good. No, I think we legacy now. That's right. <laughs> legacy sleep doc. <laughs> legacy sleep doctor. I love that. That's great. That's right. Okay. Well, thank you so much for being here today and for sharing all this. I appreciate it. Hey, anytime. I really appreciate what you do. Take care. All right. You too. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye now. It's the Sleep Well, Stay Well podcast. Now you know. Thanks for checking out the show.